0: Chapter 18 of Life of Dorothea Lind Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The Presidential Veto. At the first rumor of an impending veto, letters of indignant sympathy poured in upon Miss Dix. Is it possible, wrote Dr. Kirkbride, That the president can really think of vetoing your bill? If he does, ought he not to expect to see the ghosts of insane people around his bed at night as long as he lives? This echoed the feeling of superintendents of asylums in all quarters and of philanthropic men and women who understood the dire urgency of the case. On the other hand, the partisan press of the democratic party even that portion of it that had lately been loudest in the praise of mystics now rallied round the president and lauded his action as the acme of constitutional wisdom and sobriety As an instance of the disgust this so evidently servile reaction awakened in the breasts of many high-minded men and women, the following extract, from a letter of William Darlington of Pennsylvania, will suffice. My sympathies have been so long and so fervently enlisted in behalf of your great philanthropic enterprise now so cruelly thwarted by the executive that i find it difficult to express my sentiments in reference to that procedure in terms of moderation i have lost all patience with those narrow-souled caviling demagogues who everlastingly plead the constitution against every generous measure and recklessly trample it underfoot whenever it stands in the way of their selfish purposes and foregone conclusions. But what has been more especially excited my disgust and contempt in this connection is the course taken by the servile partisan press. During the years of your untiring efforts to get the recently vetoed bill through the two houses of Congress— the manufacturers of public opinion so called seized every occasion to ingratiate themselves with the humane portion of the community by lauding the objects of miss dix's bill and heralding the disinterested services of its benevolent author and advocate had the bill been permitted to become a law no doubt it would have been pronounced and claimed by the despicable echoes of the presidential will and pleasure as one of the noblest acts of his administration. But whatever may be the result, no arbitrary exercise of executive power, no accident of time nor chance, can deprive you of the satisfaction of having nobly and faithfully performed your part toward alleviating the miseries incident to our fallen race." The objections taken by President Pierce to the 12,225,000 acre bill were, as duly set forth in his veto message, partly constitutional and partly grounded in expediency beginning with an earnest declaration that he had been compelled to resist the deep sympathies of his own heart in favor of the humane purposes sought to be accomplished by the bill he then went on to unfold the reasons that had dictated his action to these reasons powerful rejoinders were made in the senate and the House of Representatives by Honorable John M. Clayton of Delaware, Honorable Albert G. Brown of Mississippi, Honorable Mr. Badger of North Carolina, and other prominent members. Congress, the President declared, had power to make provisions of an eleemasonary character within the limits of the District of Columbia, but nowhere outside of it. This single district was under the especial rule of government, and so furnished the one exception to an otherwise inflexible law. At the same time, he insisted on the right of Congress to grant lands on a lavish scale for schools, colleges, railroads, and various objects of internal improvement whenever however congress had ventured to cross this line as on two previous occasions it had done in kentucky and in connecticut in favor of the indigent blind and the indigent deaf and dumb then it had transcended its power and set up unsafe precedents examples to be avoided rather than followed if congress have power he then proceeded, to make provision for the indigent insane without the limits of this district. It has the same power to provide for the indigent who are not insane, and thus to transfer to the federal government the charge of all the poor in all the states. The charge of all the poor and all the states. Here was the alarmist argument driven to the last extreme the fact that a power may be abused is conclusive reason why it ought not to exist to this it was pertinently replied because congress has the power to order six steam frigates to be built shall this power be abrogated for fear it may order sixty because congress may rightly declare war against spain Shall this power be taken away because war might be declared against England, France, Italy, Germany, and Russia combined? A measure of common sense must be allowed for. The fountains of charity, continued President Pierce, will be dried up at home, and the several states, instead of bestowing their own means on the social wants of their own people, may themselves become humble supplicants for the bounty of the federal government, reversing their true relation to this union. To this it was answered by Honorable Albert G. Brown, Senator from Mississippi, I have a better opinion of the States than is here indicated. In my opinion, the fountains of their charity— are not more likely to be dried up by grants of land for the benefit of the insane than is their passion for learning to be extinguished by similar grants for school purposes. Nor is a state more likely to become an humble supplicant for the bounty of this government when she receives a small quantity of land for the relief of suffering humanity than she is when she receives a larger quantity for internal improvements and other purposes. We have seen that grants of land for school purposes have not dried up the passion for learning, but have stimulated it, and caused it to flow in a steadier and a broader stream. To my mind, this is the first land bill ever brought forward in the true spirit OF THE DEEDS OF session, IT IS THE FIRST BILL THAT EVER PROPOSED TO divide THE LANDS AMONG THE STATES, HAVING IN THEM A COMMON INTEREST, SHARE AND SHARE ALIKE. FOOTNOTE. OUT OF THIS, IN ROUND NUMBERS, 135 MILLION ACRES OF THE PUBLIC DOMAIN, WHICH HAD UP TO THIS DATE BEEN GRANTED BY CONGRESS, practically the whole had gone to measures for the rapid development of the new states, while the original thirteen states had received scarcely anything. End footnote. I am a new state man, and I am a just man, and I now say to the new states, you have no right to take from the common fund for colleges, for schools, for railroads, for swamp drainage, and for other special purposes of your own, and then say to your older sisters, you shall have no part for any purpose of yours. Can we receive for our schools, and deny to the old states for their asylums? Unless it shall be shown that it is unconstitutional to endow a lunatic asylum per se, it will follow that if you can give to a college in Alabama from the common fund, you may give to an asylum in Delaware from the same fund. Pursuing the argument of his veto message, President Pierce next assumed the position that all previous grants of portions of the public domain had been for value received, and therefore were not outright gifts. By this he meant that when he conferred for educational purposes, railway and canal construction, etc., the value of lands remaining to government was thereby doubled in value, and thus a quid pro quo secured. To this it was very sensibly replied, VALUE RECEIVED FROM WHOM? not from the grantees to them the grant was a naked unqualified gift they paid nothing they did not promise to pay anything they were gifts in the broadest fullest and most comprehensive sense of the term The fact that one section of land is doubled in value by giving away another section may be a very good argument to justify the use of an actual existing power. But if I have no power to give one section, it is useless to tell me how much the gift will enhance the value of the next section as though half conscious how indistinct a line could really be drawn between the educational and other purposes to the furtherance of which he admitted the right of congress to grant lands and the charitable purposes in respect of which he denied the existence of any such right president pierce now boldly faces the issue of taking ground that in the matter of the disposition of the public lands congress is to be regarded as nothing more than the administrator of an estate and is to be governed by precisely the same considerations as would act on the mind of any other prudent proprietor in the administration of his own property but now as to the question on the president's consistency in the view he takes of what is wise and what is foolish action on the part of his supposed prudent proprietor. Let us suppose, continues Senator Brown, that the president was the prudent proprietor of a million of acres of land in Wisconsin, and that he had appointed my friend, the senator from that state mr walker his trustee with power to dispose of the lands as a prudent proprietor would dispose of his own estate the senator sells a part at auction and some at private sale and the president approves his act saying that was prudent you had the power to do that he gives some to a railroad and the president approves that. He gives some to a college, some to common schools, some to build a courthouse, and some to drain swamps. The president looks over the whole and says, This is as a prudent proprietor would have done with his own estate. You had the power to do all this, and I approve it. Then the senator gives a little to an insane asylum. The president says, I must resist the deep sympathies of my heart in behalf of the humane purposes of this gift. It is not as a prudent proprietor would have managed his own estate, I disapprove it. Indeed, very pertinently here might even the most prudent proprietor have asked, in the name of the insane— what poor old shylock asked in the name of his tribe hath not a jew eyes hath not a jew hands organs dimensions senses affections passions do not five hundred insane patients in an asylum with their medical superintendents nurses stewards and cooks eat drink and wear clothing do they not mean an impulse at once given to opening quarries burning brick and hewing timber do not they create an immediate market for the farmer's hay beef milk butter eggs grains and vegetables do they not furnish abundant goods for transportation by railway and promote business activity in manifold ways The number of prudent proprietors who, in the exercise of the purest selfishness, would voluntarily give away half of a tract of land to secure the establishment on it, of a great insane asylum, with the sole end in view of enhancing the value of the other half, would be quite as large as of those who would do the like to secure the location on such lands of a shoe or cotton factory read therefore in the light of the powerful rejoinders made to it as well as in the light of the great majorities by which miss dix's bill had been endorsed by a democratic congress The weak and vacillating argument of President Pierce's veto message makes it hard to account for his action on any other ground than that of personal idiosyncrasies of character and opinion. It is the veto more of an individual than of a great public official. Politically, President Pierce was a man actuated by an almost virulent hatred of everything savoring of what he would term sentimental legislation elected president on the avowed platform of a northern man with southern principles he had in the whole great national issue between freedom and slavery always insisted that a deaf ear should be turned to anything but the plea FOR THE NARROWEST AND BALDEST CONSTRUCTION OF THE LETTER OF THE CONSTITUTION. THE SLIGHTEST INTRUSION OF HUMANE SENTIMENT INTO POLITICS, AND HE WAS AT ONCE ON THE VERGE OF PANIC. VERY NATURALLY, THEN, HE FLEW WILD ON THIS OCCASION. BEGIN WITH DOING ANYTHING FOR THE INDIGENT INSANE and soon will the federal government have on its hands the support of every sick man every vagabond every drunkard in the land and so long habituated to the painful duty of resisting the deep sympathies of his heart in behalf of the humane purposes of the anti-slavery agitation he felt he must equally resist them in the case of the twelve million two hundred and twenty-five thousand acre bill, and, lest a worse evil should come upon us, veto it outright. Nonetheless, though thus defeated in the end by the, as she herself always bitterly felt, arbitrary act of a mere individual, the congressional achievement of Dorothea L. Dick's as narrated in the last four chapters, will always stand out among the memorable moral triumphs of history. Everything that human foresight could provide for had been provided for by her. Only, once again, was to be justified the inscrutable experience which in all ages has leveled to the dust the pride of man, nothing is certain but the unforeseen." End of chapter 18